1: This is Lighthouse Faith podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. You know, in this modern world of technology and instant information, we sometimes lose our understanding of God or even belief in God. You know, many people think that science has replaced the need for God and that the God hypothesis was perpetuated by ignorant peoples who were superstitious about the moon and the stars and um, all the natural occurrences on earth. But we forget today that the greatest scientific discoveries were made by scientists who believed they were discovering more about God, that science gives evidence of an almighty. You know, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And it is that verse and many others like it in the Bible that compels scientists alike, um, Johannes Kepler and Copernicus and Galileo. Um, even if a scientist doesn't believe in God, the scripture tells us it is God who made the mind of those who make discoveries. I mean, I, I always like to say, you know, you can deny God's existence, but you cannot escape his existence. If there is a God, we live in his world and not he in ours. So if you want a good source for understanding the relationship between the scientific discoveries and faith, um, an invaluable source is historian William Federer's book, Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, The Faith of Those Who Achieve Them. And uh, Dr. Federer joins me now. Welcome.
0: It's great to be with you, Lauren.
1: Well, it's really great to uh, talk with you, too, because I always say that I always learn so much, and I feel like I get a little, you know, sort of, you know, certificate of education when I, when I talk to you. Um, you also have a website that people can go to, though, too, to find out more about. Um, what is your website?
0: It's AmericanMinute.com.
1: Okay. And so people can find out about really pretty much anything. Um, you know, right. you're, yeah. you're, you're really an encyclopedia of knowledge
0: well they can search it i to put up all my daily history blogs and then also have a, a daily email that i sent out with um famous explorers and scientists and, and inventions and but it all points back and includes their faith somewhere in there
1: yeah yeah you know i want to go to the science and discoveries but it is the memorial day weekend um Uh, You know, either, you know, people will hear this today or tomorrow or next week. But in the next few weeks, we should, you know, remember Memorial Day. um, And you are an historian that ties in faith to our history. And Memorial Day is certainly one that is steeped in both. Um, What is the significance of Memorial Day for us?
0: Right. Well, Memorial Day is for those that died. Veterans Days is for those that are still alive. But it are those that uh, defended our country. So Memorial Day began after the Civil War. Uh, Southern women began to scatter flowers on the graves of both northern and southern uh, soldiers. Half a million died in the war. Many places claim to be the original origin, but like many things, they sort of, uh, you know, you got Gettysburg and Warrington, Virginia, and Columbus, Georgia, and different places. But um, th- there even was a place in Charleston, South Carolina, where there's a mass grave that they uncovered of mm-hmm. 257 Union soldiers. And the former slaves organized a parade. And led by 2,800 singing black children, as they marched the these soldiers' bodies from this mass grave into graves to you know individually to honor them. And uh, but then after World War One, you had uh, the more emphasis on it. And the, you know, Sergeant Alvin York uh, was one of the soldiers in World War I, captured 132 Germans, and then he came back to America, started a Bible school. Harry S. Truman was an artillery officer. Eddie Rickenbacker, the famous uh, pilot. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's son died in World War I. And, and even Irving Berlin, who uh, wrote uh, God Bless America, served in World War One. And that's when, right afterwards, Warren G. Harding, uh, had the remains of an unknown soldier that was killed in France during World War I, buried in the tomb of the unknown soldier, and engraved on the tomb is, here rests in honor, glory, an American soldier known but to God.
1: Well, You know, you would talk about a half a million soldiers dead uh, during the Civil War. How does that compare to other wars that we fought in?
0: Well, uh Revolution had 25,000 die, War of 1812 uh 20,000, uh Mexican-American War about 13,000, uh Spanish-American War about 2,000, uh, World War 1 over 100,000 and World War 2 nearly a half a million. And um and then, you know, other wars that are, are less than that, but mm-hmm. uh and then you add the casualties, <clears throat> you add the uh, diseases that spread. You know, you had the Spanish flu during this time. You had uh, the disruption. Uh, Her- Herbert Hoover, uh, he was um, an international businessman. Uh, there was no FEMA. There was no United Nations. Herbert Hoover organized the feeding of Europe after World War I and all these displaced peoples and destroyed farms and factories. And sort of on the cusp of that, it was the enthusiasm in which he got swept in as the president. But, um, Yes, a tremendous amount of loss of life. And when you realize that the ultimate is either top down or bottom up, most countries, they're top down. And you go back to Pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers and Sultans and Tsars, and your life is only of worth if you serve the state or the king. America's founders broke away from the most powerful king on the planet, the king of England. We flipped it and made the people the king. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. Right. So Mm -hmm, basically, mm -hmm. uh, when we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, we're pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. You get to decide where you want to live, what career you want to pursue, who you want to marry, what church you want to go to or not go to. You get these decisions. and Then all of us together make the decisions for the country. It's bottom up. And unfortunately, in times of crises, people surrender their freedoms uh, in the emergency and it turns it flips back into a top down. Once it does that, it very seldom turns back.
1: You know, one of the things that you said that I thought was very interesting about Memorial Day is that it seems to be this sort of organic development that people needed to honor their dead in a way that wasn't just a funeral. It wasn't it was just something more that the country needed to do. Why was that important to honor our war dead?
0: Um, Well, it is the appreciation, the gratefulness, uh, which is a concept we don't hear a whole lot about, but this gratefulness for the freedoms that they had. Uh, That we have and and where they came from. Uh, Matter of fact, here's a quote from, from Bill Clinton on Memorial Day 1993. He says, the inscription on the tomb of the unknown soldier says known but to God, but that is only partly true. While the soldier's name is known only to God, we know a lot about him. We know he served his country, honored his community, and died for the cause of freedom. And we know that no higher praise can be assigned to any human being than those simple words. In the presence of those buried all around us, we ask the support of all Americans in a, the aid and the blessing of God Almighty.
1: There is this sense. I mean, when you really understand Memorial Day, there is this sense that we we may go to war, but you know we're hoping that we're still on God's side, um, even though we we do feel our cause is just, and that's really the sort of the the thin line in going to war, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And is it just a maneuver to gain power? Um, You know, there was, you know, in the Middle East, um, sort of a, a move where we went from going over there to free people up from Saddam Hussein. And then later, under the next administration, uh, it was well, don't offend them over there. And uh, and some of these soldiers were like uh, seeing women getting beaten or seeing boys being—I uh, won't describe it all—but um, yeah. uh, they got in trouble because they were um, not being sensitive of the cultures of these people. And our soldiers are saying, if we're not fighting over here to give people the same freedoms that we have, uh, what are we doing, right? Yeah. Is it just a mercenary operation? Uh, So, yeah, what you're pointing out is it's very important to realize that um, that our soldiers are fighting to maintain and give these freedoms that we enjoy to the rest of the world.
1: Wow. Well, I want to move on to sort of the scientific um, revolution and how faith is so tied into that. Um, So when do you know, as far as we understand, when did sort of the scientific revolution begin, you know, with whom and, and what discoveries
0: Right. Nic- Nicholas Copernicus, In uh, he lived uh, 1473 to 1543. He discovered the heliocentric solar system. Helio means sun. And so he discovered that the sun is the center of the solar system. This was the beginning of what we call the scientific revolution. Now, he was a Christian. He had his doctorate in canon church law. And Copernicus said the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. And a uh, contemporary of his was Galileo, and he was the first astronomer to use a telescope. He even made them and, and uh, you know, would polish the, the little lenses, and he says, I give infinite thanks to God who has been pleased to make me the first observer of marvelous things. And Galileo says the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. And then Galileo says, God is known in nature by his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. So this begins what is repeated is there are are two books. One is creation in which we can see how powerful and glorious God is. And then there's the book of Revelation, the scriptures that teaches us how to have a relationship with this God.
1: You know, it's very interesting because one of the two things that um, you see in these two books, you see in nature, the God of law, you know, there's an ordered universe. There is a God of law, but you see in his, the scripture, you've got a God of love and, and, and only these two, only a God, a just God can put these two things together. Um, One of the things that's really important you talk about, um, and if people don't know church history or actually scientific history, they focus on Galileo as the, as the one who really took the heat for saying no um, the earth revolves around the sun. The sun does not revolve on the, around the earth. Why is it that we focus so much on Galileo and forget Copernicus?
0: Right. Well, uh, Gal- there were church um, scholars and they were invested in certain beliefs and they didn't like take kindly to those that were wanting to shake uh, the accepted beliefs. And so uh, Galileo was one that uh, did get in trouble for a buck in the system. Um, you know, uh, another one uh, is Tycho Brahe. He mm-hmm. is in Denmark. Uh, King James actually visited him on his honeymoon, you know, with, with his new bride because she was from Denmark. And anyway, Tycho Brahe had accurate astronomical observations. And he said, those who study the stars have God for a teacher. He said, the machine of heaven is divinely governed under a given law. And uh, now Tycho Brahe's assistant was Johannes Keppert. Kepler, he took these astronomical observations, studied them together with a telescope, and he discovered laws of planetary motion, as known as Kepler's laws, celestial mechanics. And mm-hmm. he noticed there were eight notes in music and eight planets in the solar system. And so he wrote a book called The Harmonies of the World in 1619.
1: See, I love that because I'm a musician and and the whole thing about there being eight, you know, well, no. It's, I mean, it's actually seven, and then the eighth one is actually the completion of it. But it's just the idea that this harmony there's there, and this sort of musical reference to how to describe the universe that God made the universe. It's very mathematical, and music itself is mathematical.
0: Right, and and Kepler said, "Oh Almighty God, I am thinking Thy thoughts after Thee." And then Kepler said, I had the intention of becoming a theologian, but now I see God is by my endeavors also glorified in astronomy for the heavens declare the glory of God. And then the scientific revolution is capped off with Sir Isaac Newton, and he has the first reflecting telescope. He's considered the father of modern physics. Uh, There's a plague in London. We have our plagues, but uh, this plague killed a quarter of the city. Uh, They they had to shut down the schools, uh, Oxford and Cambridge. And so young Sir Isaac Newton, 1666, had to leave and be on his family's estate in the country. He saw an apple fall and he goes, why did the apple fall down and not sideways? And and there must be a force pulling it. And does the force stop at the apple? Or maybe it goes up to the moon. Maybe it goes up to the sun. And indeed, he comes up with the laws of gravity. And did you know that Sir Isaac Newton wrote more on Bible prophecies in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation than he did on science?
1: I had no idea. I had I mean, no he, idea. He,
0: he's considered one of the fathers of the discovery of calculus and uh, laws of optics, you know, that light has you know, all the colors of the rainbow in it. and And so, Sir Isaac Newton said, this most beautiful system of sun, planet and comets could only proceed from an intelligent and powerful being. Order and life in the universe could only happen by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God.
1: Wow. You know, it's amazing how much you can accomplish when you're not watching TV or on social media um, doing, doing God knows what, I guess. I don't know. Uh, we're going to take a break right now here on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Where we're going to talk about science and faith and miraculous milestones of scientific discoveries and innovations, um, all really based on the order of the universe and the order of, um, in, 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 the faith, in faith in God. We'll be right back
0: from the Fox news podcasts network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy podcast, former federal prosecutor and four-term U S congressman from South Carolina brings you a one of a kind podcast subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com
1: And we're back back with Bill Federer. He's an incredible historian talking about his book, um, miraculous milestones. Um, you know, one of the things you talk about, which is very, really important about the the deists, you know, they this is kind of one of the things that happens that God set they believe that God set the order of the universe in motion and then just sort of stepped away and um, and remains uninvolved. You know, Thomas Jefferson was one of those who believed that. What would you what would the early scientists say to that?
0: Right. that, that was an afterthought. So you had these discoveries of laws of science. Robert Boyle discovered the laws of pressure. Right. You decrease the volume, you increase the pressure. Uh, He's Robert Boyle's considered the father of chemistry. He comes up with the terms element and litmus test, chemical analysis. Uh And he set aside, uh, money for the Boyle lectures, he endowed it. And he said, 50 pounds for an annual salary of a learned divine to preach, proving the Christian religion against notorious infidels, atheists, theists, pagans, Mohammedans. I mean, this is the father of chemistry, We're putting aside money to to spread this. And uh, and then I, I have to throw in Blaise Pascal. He yes. uh, is the, the, book, the barometer, right? Father of hydrostatics and uh, hydraulic engineering. He says, how can anyone lose who chooses to become a christian if when he dies there turns out to be no god he's been happier in this life than his non-believing friends if however there is a god any heaven any hell he has gained heaven and his skeptical friends have lost everything in hell and um so as far as the the, the deism goes yes uh, they discovered these laws of nature and this was a, a big deal. The world was like, gee, things are are ordered. And yeah. so some theologian says, Well, gee, maybe God made everything and it and it like the gears of a clock. They all work together. Maybe like sets the, the clock on a shelf and everything's working its way. And if God's there, he's distant. He's uninvolved. And the extreme of this is God is just some impersonal force in the universe, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and this began to filter into politics, believe it or not. And so the covenant idea that the pilgrims had that was incorporated into the New England colonies and, you know, eventually our constitution, uh, it was God is a personal God and you sh- he, he gives you rights personally and you're caring for others voluntarily because Jesus says, whatever you do to the least, he's my brother and you've done it to me. Uh, the next century after the uh, pilgrims, covenant turns into social contract with the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, the during the scientific revolution. And uh, you have this co- caring for others just simply turns into an agreement, a social contract. And you get. if God's there, he's distant. He's mm-hmm. uninvolved. Yeah. And then the next century, you have the French Revolution, where it's just a social contract. There is no God. You get your rights from the group. You're accountable to the group. The next century, that turns into socialism, where the state is God. And Hegel, who uh was the socialist philosopher at the University of Berlin, taught Karl Marx. Hegel says the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God. All the work mm-hmm. which the human being has is he has only through the state. Sounds like back course, to the
1: Roman Empire. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so so you see this gradual transition, but uh, yeah, these theologians took it and that turned into the the deism uh, mm-hmm. that was prevalent uh, in academia during that, you know, late 17th century
1: and the book really talks about a lot of a lot of discoveries, but one of the things that 's fascinating to me when you talk about the divine ratio or the golden proportion, and this is something people could really take in their their lives and actually look and see that there is something about these things that are tied to each other what is it what is the golden proportion
0: right so we here on earth uh, notice it 's a rate of geometric expansion. You notice it in seashells that does the little circle, little bigger circle, little bigger, bigger circle. You notice it the way water goes down a drain, a hurricane spins, a tornado spins. But then you look out and it's the way galaxies spin. And they go from this tight center and they begin to spin out. So it's a geometric ratio that transcends Earth. I mean, it's all the way out there and it shows there's an order in the universe. And it's, it's critical because if if the rate of expansion was a little bit less, gravity would pull uh, the weight upon itself and everything would collapse. And if it was a little bit more, everything would just quickly spin out into nothingness. And so it's, it's sort of a, a very unique, um, uh, you know, balance of, of this geometric design that proves that, you know, lends evidence that there is a, uh, an order. And even um, Einstein uh, mm-hmm. said uh, he said, I am absolutely not an atheist. I observe the laws of nature. there are not laws without a law giver. Now, mm-hmm. Einstein was one of those that believed there was a creator, but he was distant mm-hmm. and um, you know not a personal God. but um, uh, he went out to uh, Edwin Hubble uh, in the um, you know 1930s Edwin Hubble had the most powerful telescope uh, in the country, Mount Wilson Observatory, Pasadena, California. And he's looking at stars and he sees a fuzzy star and looks at it closer, 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 and it's the Andromeda Galaxy. It's the first galaxy that was identified outside. Before then, they thought the galaxy and universe was like synonymous. Yeah. And yeah. um uh, and the light travels in waves, and so blue is the fastest wave, and red is the slowest. And so as Hubble looked through this, he saw some of these distant galaxies with a reddish hue. And that would imply they're moving away from us, and we 're seeing the slow part of the light. Einstein goes out there, looks through the telescope, and he thought the universe was just static, that it was mm-hmm. always there, mm-hmm. always will be and and Einstein sees this redshift, and then he says, "I now see the necessity of a beginning and of course, this ultimately came up with the big Bang theory uh, that everything did have a beginning, and so forth.
1: Wow, you know there's something else too that I think is important um. And I, 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 I spend so much time on these beginning ones because it's so critical to understanding, you know, the whole idea of science and faith. And it's something called the anthropic principle. And you don't actually say the words in the book, but it's basically that, um, that there's like a, you say, there's like 100 parameters um, that have to be set, have to be perfect within a very minuscule um, parameter in order for life to exist on Earth. Um, right. And this is really fascinating.
0: Yeah. So Carl Sagan thought that, you know, maybe 20 different things were necessary for life to exist on a planet. And over the time from Carl Sagan till now, it's gone from 20, 30, 40, 100 to And now it's it's hundreds that there needs to be a molten core so that you can have a magnetic field that can keep out the gamma rays. And if we didn't have Jupiter, which is bigger than all the other planets in the solar system, twice over jupiter is so big that it pulls the asteroids into its ar- orbit and smashes into that and otherwise these and the asteroid belt would they'd hit the earth more and mm-hmm. if we didn't have a moon the water would just continually wash over the earth if if the earth was two percent closer to the sun would be fried two percent further away we'd be frozen and then water the, how it it gives life to everything and you don't see that uh in the same way on other planets and so when you come down to it it is so rare that yeah. there that it, all these things just happen to absolutely be perfect for life to exist on this planet it it lends itself to that there was a creator that this couldn't have happened simply by accident. Yeah. Um, I love the quote from Vernon von braun he's in the book he mm-hmm. is the uh father of modern space flight and he developed the saturn V rocket uh which you know is this enormous rocket a football field long that can launch to get to the moon he says when astronaut frank borman now he's the one on apollo 8 circle the moon and then on christmas eve 1968 from the the spaceship uh, reads the first chapter of Genesis over the radio on earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without, f- without form and void, and dark goes upon the face of... He reads all this, and, um, and they even have a U.S. potion stamp with the moon and, you know, earth, and mm-hmm. in the beginning, mm-hmm. God gives a quote from it. Um, now, Madeline Murray O'Hare, an atheist, uh, threatened to sue NASA, so after that, they said, we'll turn your mic off if you're going to do anything. But astronaut Frank Gorman. Uh, was told that a Soviet cosmonaut had gone into space, came back and commented that he had not seen God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank Warman replied, no, I did not see him either, but I saw his evidence.
1: And that's really what we see. We saw the evidence of God in the scientific workings um, of this universe, of the of, of the entire creation. Um, you know, with millions, billions of planets and solar systems um and you say it's octillion or something like that. That's a, a number I've not even heard of um it, known in the universe. Why is there silence? Why do we not see other planets supporting life? I mean, we've we know there how many planets are out there. At least now they're gazillions, and why the silence?
0: Yeah, well, they haven't found any, um, and the. Um... Uh, you know the Hubble Telescope. I t- talk about it in the the book. How it was launched in the nineteen nineties. It's above the atmosphere, so it gets really clear pictures. In two thousand and three, they focused it on a little spot in the sky where there was nothing. The spot was so small. If you were to take the grain, a grain of sand, hold it between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky, that's how teeny of a spot they focused this powerful telescope on for two weeks, and they developed the images. In, and in that little spot, they found there were ten thousand galaxies with a trillion stars in each galaxy and they looked in another direction another lo and behold it blew astronomers minds that this universe is immensely bigger than anybody thought and um and it's expanding at the speed of light and um the largest star they or star they found is stevenson 2-18 it's a super gas giant if you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet. Could you imagine one star? And now from the scientists that started the scientific revolution, the attitude was God is all powerful and he exists for eternity and he knows everything. It's not that he knows everything. It's impossible for him not to know everything and everything obeys him. And it's almost like he's, you know, after an eternity of this, he said, you know, been there, done that. I can make stars and rocks and things that obey me. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Mm. And so he created this thing we call reality. And he hides himself behind creation because if he ever reveals himself, he is so totally awesome. Your, every atom in your being would fall down and worship him. And he wouldn't know if you're worshiping him because you love him or because he's just awesome. And so yeah. love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. If God forced us to love him, he himself would know that he is forcing us to love him. And he would know our response is not a love response. So within everything he controls, the the whole universe, time, space, everything he controls, he he creates this, this, within a parameter, this little thing he does not control, our will. And um Now, he could if he wanted to, but he intentionally created it so that he didn't, so that we could have the freedom to choose him and have a love response. I mean, think of it. If you were God, you're existing for eternity. you know. Um, And so, you know, a little bit preachy, but I tell people, um, imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he's driving up with his Lamborghini, his Porsche, his (laughs) Maserati. He's got his gold ring, got fancy clothes. Every, Every girl on campus is going to want to meet him. But if he lays all that aside, drives up in an old clunker, he's got holes in his jeans, the uppity girls will ignore him, and he'll find some girl that likes to study with them in the library. They have an ice cream cone together. They get to be friends, fall in love, get engaged. Then he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this mansion, and this girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff.
1: You know, it sounds like Crazy Rich Asians, actually. The movie is a lot of that. You know, one of the things that is you actually go from the science to the history of writing in ancient Israel. And this is so important because it is ancient Israel that gives us the scriptures, the Bible.
0: Right. So, we read, right? Well, where did read, reading and writing come from? In, it, it originally started with kings controlling everything in their cities, and they wanted accountants to keep up with it. And so, in China, they had knots and ropes, and then they had invented an abacus, rods with beads, and then they made tokens and markings and tokens, and you take a stick, poke it in clay. So, that's basically the beginning of writing. And um, in Sumeria, they had 1,500 cuneiform characters, but it was only for kings and scribes. Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Mm -hmm. It was the pharaohs and the scribes. Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. China had 10,000 characters only for court records. Imagine memorizing 10,000 characters. When Moses came down the mountain, he had the law in a 22-character alphabet. First letters Aleph, second letter Beth, so easy to learn. Kids could learn it. Yeah. All of a sudden, instead of reading and writing being the this deep state communication where they know what's going on, nobody else does. Now the whole population could. So Israel is the first literate populace, and they're you know they call the people of the book, and everybody would read. So I go through that history, and uh, and then I go through the history of printing, and so the the, um, middle. Mediterranean wrote on uh, papyrus reeds. But in China, they wrote on bamboo strips from top to bottom. And then China invented a paper from tree pulp. Mm. And, but the, all it was was rubbings. And so they'd have you know, a piece of stone, they'd carve something in it, and then they'd take this piece of paper with you know, ink and they'd lay it over there and you'd have a printing. But with 10,000 characters, it, you, you couldn't have a, a printing press with that many. And so they, all they printed was little short poems and currency. And so Kublai Khan had the first paper currency in the world. Unfortunately, he printed too much of it, and it led to the collapse of his dynasty. Korea in 1234 did create a 26-letter alphabet to teach the Chinese characters uh, to the court, but they now had a um, uh, 26-letter metal movable-type printing press, but they were the hermit kingdom. And so ships would, you know, crash land there and they weren't allowed off. So they didn't share their invention. But it was in 1454 that Gutenberg in Europe developed the first metal movable type printing press for Western Europe. One of the very first things he printed was what? The Bible. And um, uh, Gutenberg said, let us break the seal which seals up holy things and give wings to truth in order that she may win every soul that comes into the world. No longer written at great expense by hands easily palsied but multiplied like the wind by an untiring machine. So before Gutenberg, you would literally have to hand copy an entire Bible. It would take a year, and you'd have to hire the smartest guy because they would want to have it exact. I mean, they were like, you know, probably $100,000. But once the printing press, boom, common people could have it, and it released uh, the common people learning how to read. Instead of the Bible, you know.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating because you know uh, I, we have to wrap up here, but it's really fascinating because one of the things we we're talking about in this pandemic was that children were kind of getting behind in their in their their, their education, and particularly the age of six and seven, which is where they learn to read. And one of the educators said, "You know, you have to think about this. We we learn to read early in our lives, and then we read to learn after that, and that's so important." To put in perspective how important it is to have a printing press, being able to read, having uh, an alphabet and characters and language and being able to communicate. And all of that happened really in sort of this miraculous sequence of events, you know.
0: Right, and I know we're running out of time, but in the, there is a chapter on the history of hospitals. So mm-hmm. today we're having medical professionals that maybe have you know values that they don't want to participate in certain medical procedures, abortion, and so forth. Uh, they're being told, Oh, just set aside your your you know Bible beliefs and just do what we tell you." Well, lo and behold, hospitals started with Christians. Yeah right and so they would take pilgrimages to the middle east when wind up worn out and so every cathedral would have an infirmary and the traveler that would travel that the latin word for traveler is hosp H-O-S-P, where you get the word hospitality. Mm-hmm. And so it was pilgrims. And so they, they you know, traveling there to, to go on mm-hmm. a religious uh, journey. and uh, But then you had a plague. You had the plague of Justinian. 15 million people died, 25% of Europe. Wow. And there is a St. Samson the hospitable. And he starts a, a hospital for poor in Constantinople. And then you have the Benedictine order, start the first medical school in Salerno, Italy. And then you have these sisters of... Um, you know, that start hospitals across Europe. And, uh, but, you know, and the first hospital started west of the Mississippi. It was the Sisters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. They started in St. Louis. And 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 during the Civil War, you had orders of nuns. Matter of fact, it was the nun habit with the hat that turned into the nurse's hat. Oh, yes. And, he, and even Florence Nightingale said, there is no one trained better at medical care than a Catholic nun. And it was sort of synonymous that the nuns would do it, you know, and uh, now, most of the medical care was convalescent and, and uh, care and so forth. But nevertheless, this is the history.
1: It's a fascinating book. Fascinating. The book is called Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation and the Faith of Those Who Achieve Them. Um, Bill, where can people get your book besides, I, I assume, like Amazon.com and other uh, booksellers? But where would you like them to go to get the book? <laughs>
0: Sure. Yes. Well, uh, our website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And while they're there, they can uh, sign up for a free daily history email.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Always, always an education when, when you're on board.
0: Thank you, Lauren. It's an honor.
1: And thank you for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.